Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today's episode is the next installment in our Six Impossible episode series. If you are new to the show, sometimes I group together six topics that for one reason or another can't really work as a full episode, or sometimes they just work together as a group. And the last time we did this, we talked about Mother Goose and nursery rhymes, and I was not planning for the very next one to be more nursery rhymes. But so many people wrote in to say, please do more of those, that I was like, sure. dun da da dun Seems like fun. Last time, we talked about who this Mother Goose person is anyway along with The Muffin Man, Ring Around the Rosie, Little Jack Horner, Rockabye Baby, and Mistress Mary Quite Contrary. So if you are curious about the origins of any of those and have not heard that earlier episode, that came out on May 3rd of this year, which is 2021, in case you need a refresher. I sure do. (laughs) And we kicked off that previous Six Impossible episodes with a caveat, and we're going to do the same today. A lot of English-language nursery rhymes are more than 300 years old. Most of the ones we're talking about today appeared in some form in Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook that was first printed in 1744 and is the first known English-language collection of nursery rhymes. Most, but not all, nursery rhymes circulated orally for some time before being written down, and many also have precursors or influences from other languages that are at least as old as the ones that are in English, so they have been around for a long time. But it was not until the late 19th and early 20th centuries that people started really studying these poems. And that came along with a rise in academic interest in folklore. So for the most part, these purported explanations for what these poems mean were first proposed hundreds of years after the poems were composed. Catherine Elwes Thomas published The Real Personages of Mother Goose in 1930, And that became a pretty big source for a lot of these interpretations. While that book does have very extensive cross-references to different pieces of literature and historical events, all of which are very precisely footnoted, some of them do seem like kind of a stretch. Many historians and folklorists argue that these kinds of interpretations are mostly conjecture. You maybe have heard the term backronym, In an acronym, a word is formed out of an abbreviation, like radio detection and ranging becoming the word radar. But a backronym takes an existing word that was not created from an abbreviation and makes up an abbreviation to go with it. For example, there's the APGAR score, which was named for Virginia APGAR, who we've covered on the show before. But then people later turned this into a mnemonic for what the score evaluates. And that is a list of the newborn baby's appearance, pulse, grimace, activity, and respiration, which, of course, spell out the word APGAR. So it's possible, or maybe even likely, that at least some of these interpretations are more like backronyms than actual reflections of what the people who made up the rhymes intended for them to mean, if in fact they intended for them to mean anything. Sometimes it seems like they just meant to be silly. 
At the same time, though, these are fun, and they give us a chance to take a quick look at the various historical moments and people and places that these poems may or may not be related to. So first up, good old Jack and Jill, who went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. There is a second, and probably slightly newer verse that's maybe not as well known, which is, Up Jack got, and home did trot, as fast as he could caper. To old Dame Dobb, who patched his knob with vinegar and brown paper. Had you heard that before, Holly? Uh, I feel like I have, but I couldn't tell you where, because I remember having a thought about, like, wait, are they saying that he's uh, some sort of pinata boy? Like, I didn't understand the, the brown paper situation. <laughs> so I had, like, a little vinegar paper mache going on. Right. I don't think I had. Uh, because one of the things that we're going to get to referenced this vinegar and brown paper, and I was like, what are you talking about? Where does this come from? Because I had not actually found the second verse written out yet. So starting in the early 19th century, in addition to those two verses, people started tacking on more and more verses and using this as a template for pantomimes and plays. And illustrations of this nursery rhyme dating back over the last couple of centuries Sometimes Jack and Jill are depicted as young children, but sometimes they are teens or young adults. The earliest known version of this poem was printed in Mother Goose's Melody in 1765, and there are several interpretations or explanations of where it came from. First, Kilmersden in North Somerset, England, is home to a Jack and Jill hill. The path up the hill has a set of stone markers that contain lines from the poem. Kilmersden School is at the top of the hill, and there's a plaque on the side of it that was placed in the year 2000, bearing the full poem along with the inscription, quote, It is said that centuries ago, Jack and Jill daily went up the hill for water. One fateful day, Jack was hit by a boulder from nearby Badstone Quarry. He tumbled down and suffered a wound that not even vinegar and brown paper could mend. Jill also died young, but not before she had given birth to the couple's son, whom villagers raised and called Jill's son. The surname Gilson still features widely in this area. And that's when I was like, what is this vinegar and brown paper thing written on the side of the school? Some sources pinpoint this story as having been something that happened sometime in the 15th century. And there are also variations in which uh, Jack and Jill in this story were a married couple, and then other ones where they were going up the hill because they were not married and their relationship was a secret, and their fetching water was just a pretense so they could have some time alone together. There are also speculations that this is a reference to King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette being beheaded during the French Revolution. The problem there is that the king and queen were beheaded in 1793. That's almost 30 years after this poem appeared in print for the first time. Another speculation, there is a unit of measure that I sure do not use very often, which is called the gill, also spelled the jill. This unit of measure has been around since sometime in the 1300s, and it was initially used to measure servings of things like whiskey and wine. It still exists, it's still typically used for liquids, and its exact volume has varied over the years. Currently, in the United States, it's equivalent to half a cup, while in the UK, it is five British fluid ounces, or a fourth of a pint. 
Back in the reign of King Charles I, which started in 1625, a Jill was half a jack, and a jack was also known as a jackpot. King Charles wanted to increase tax revenue, and one way to do this was to make liquid measures smaller. People probably wouldn't drink less if they were served a smaller portion. They would just buy more of those smaller measures and then have to pay a tax on each one. So King Charles reduced the size of the jack. In other words, jack fell down. And since a jill was half a jack, jill came tumbling after. Another idea is that this is an English language reference to the Norse myth of Juki and Bill, who are siblings who follow the moon, or perhaps were stolen away by the moon. They carry a pail of water on a pole in between them. Sometimes this is interpreted as the dark spots on the moon that we see when we look at it from the Earth, representing Juki and Bill. The names Juki and Bill aren't really all that far off from Jack and Jill. Like, Juki and Jack are a little different, but if you turn Bill into the same first letter, it's basically the same. So there's some speculation that these are two versions of the same story. William Stuart Baring Gould was probably the first person to make this connection in Curious Myths of the Middle Ages, which came out in 1866. On a completely different note, Catherine Elwes Thomas argues that this poem is, quote, a fling at Cardinal Wolsey and his co-adjutor Bishop Tarb. They were going up the hill to arrange a marriage between Mary Tudor and the French monarch. The pail of water in this interpretation is holy water. Among Thomas's citations for this interpretation is a poem from Harleian Miscellany published in 1661, which uses the names Jack and Jill in reference to Wolsey's opposition to Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn. At the same time, though, the names Jack and Jill have really gone together as a pair in English for centuries, with the first use in writing dating back more than a hundred years before that 1661 publication. We're going to take a quick sponsor break, and then we will get to another poem that may or may not have something to do with Cardinal Wolsey. Our next rhyme. Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard to get her poor dog a bone. When she got there, the cupboard was bare, and so the poor dog had none. Uh, I think most folks are probably familiar with that bit of the poem, but there is a whole, whole lot more of it than just that first bit. Uh, And curiously, the rest of the stanzas have fewer lines and a slightly different cadence from that first bit. The next stanza is, She went to the baker's to buy him some bread, and when she came back, the poor dog was dead. Okay, that's troubling, but don't be alarmed. It's okay. (laughs) Uh, Mother Hubbard goes to the undertakers to buy the dog a coffin, but when she comes back, he's a-laughing. It it works out. (laughs) The dog was fine. (laughs) Ha ha! Uh, This poem becomes increasingly fanciful, with old Mother Hubbard bringing the dog some linen, hose, a hat, some fruit, a coat, a wig, some tripe, some fish, and some wine, and the dog... Bless his heart, wearing clothes, playing the flute, feeding the cat, riding the goat, dancing a jig, smoking a pipe, washing a dish, and standing on his head. It's a lot. Uh, It's really kind of fun. (laughs) It goes back and forth that way through many stanzas. (laughs) It starts out with me feeling like she's not the best pet caretaker, but then by the end, I'm like, oh, they're both bananas. It's okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, they're, they both have a lot going on here. So in terms of nursery rhyme authorship, this one's a little unusual, especially in terms of what we have talked about in uh, this couple of episodes. We're actually pretty sure who wrote this and when. And it has that in common with Mary Had a Little Lamb, which Sarah Josepha Hale published in 1830. We have talked about that on the podcast before. Old Mother Hubbard first appears as The Comic Adventures of Old Mother Hubbard and Her Dog by Sarah Catherine Martin, published on June 1st, 1805. As the story goes, Martin was in her 30s and she was visiting her sister, and her future brother-in-law became really annoyed because she kept trying to talk to him while he was trying to do something else. So he told her in a really insulting way to go write a poem or something. So she did, and that poem became what's known as Old Mother Hubbard. Even though the 1805 version is the first printed version of the full poem we know today, it may have had some earlier inspirations. Mother Hubbard was already something of a stock character long before this, dating back at least to Edmund Spencer's 1590 satire, Prosopopoeia, or Mother Hubbard's Tale. Although this piece features the name Mother Hubbard, there is no dog and there's no bone in a cupboard. There are also some parallels to a poem that was published in Gammer Girton's Garland in 1784. This one references an old woman who, quote, lived upon nothing but vittles and drink. And the woman in this poem goes off to the baker to buy some bread, and she comes home to find her husband dead, not her dog. But then after she goes to the clerk to toll the bell for him, she comes back home again to find her husband well. That's not the only indication that there may have been earlier versions of at least the first few stanzas of Old Mother Hubbard. Coffin doesn't rhyme with laughing, but it does rhyme with lawfen, which was used to mean laughing in the works of such writers as William Shakespeare. So it is possible that the first three stanzas or so already existed in some form and that Martin built on them at the start of the 19th century. And as we said back before the break, there's some suggestion that this circles back around to Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. The interpretation here is that all those things that Mother Hubbard brings to her dog and all of her dog's responses recreate the back and forth between Wolsey and the Pope when Wolsey was trying and failing to negotiate a divorce for Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. In The Real Personages of Mother Goose, Catherine Elwes Thomas cites the tragedy of Cardinal Wolsey that was first printed in The Mirror for Magistrates in 1587, and that includes a reference to a dog and a bone. And then there are also some other 16th century satires that call the cardinal by the name Jack. Today, there is a cottage in Devon known as Old Mother Hubbard's Cottage, purportedly where Martin lived when she wrote the poem. Part of the lore surrounding that cottage is that she was working as a housekeeper at nearby Kitley House. But Martin was also reportedly the daughter of a member of Parliament and the one-time love interest of King William IV while he was a prince. So there is some question about whether she would have gotten a job as a housekeeper. Yeah. So we will move on from there. To Baba Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full. One for the master and one for the dame and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. That's probably the version of that that most people are most familiar with. Sometimes people sing it to the same basic tune as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or the alphabet song. This poem has stayed pretty much the same for almost 300 years since its first appearance in Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook in 1744. 
Except that version ends with, but none for the little boy who cries in the lane. So it's a little bit sadder. Most of the purported historical meanings for this poem have to do with taxes. One is the so-called Great Custom, which was a tax on wool that Parliament granted to Edward I of England in 1275. So in this poem, the sheep is saying, there's wool for the master, that being the king, and the dame, that being the landlord, and none for the poor child. Catherine Ellis Thomas puts forth the same basic idea, but connects it to a different era, that being the reign of Edward VI and the Norfolk Rising of 1549, which was also known as Ket's Rebellion. This rebellion was connected to landowners enclosing common land, which meant that tenants no longer had space for grazing their animals, including their sheep. And the same basic idea is the same, that the master and the dame were the king and the nobility, and that the little boy represented the common people. Since about the 1980s, various people have raised questions about whether this poem has a racial component or a connection to the transatlantic slave trade, since the sheep is described as black. The term black sheep has been used as an idiom meaning outcast or a disreputable person since at least 1640. The idea of black sheep as somehow different from other sheep also appeared in English translations of the Christian Bible at least a century before that. All the black lambs in a flock are gathered up as part of someone's wages in the book of Genesis. The Oxford English Dictionary suggests that this may be the idiom's origin, although the color is not always translated as black in these verses, and the animals are not always translated as being sheep. But the word black has been used to describe both people of African descent and things that are thought of as evil or wicked for more than a thousand years. Both of those meanings go all the way back to early Old English, So while this poem probably was not originally meant as a reference to the transatlantic slave trade, and the word black in there might have just been for the sake of it being alliterative with the ba-ba part, at this point, those connotations are pretty deeply entrenched in the English language. So next, uh, another poem. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. Early versions of this poem have London Bridge broken down rather than falling, and there are a lot more verses about what materials should be used to build it back up again and why all of those materials will not work. Like, quote, build it up with wood and clay, wood and clay, wood and clay. Wood and clay will wash away, my fair lady. From there, it's bricks and mortar, which will not stay, and then iron and steel, which will bend and bow, and silver and gold, which will be stolen away. This takes an even more nonsensical turn, because rather than finding a more suitable bridge material than silver and gold, the proposed solution is to set a man to watch all night to make sure nobody steals it. But since there's a chance that the man might fall asleep, it's suggested that he be given a pipe to smoke. Sure. <laughs> it's sort of like there's a hole in my bucket, dear Liza, but about structural engineering. Right. Um, and uh, smoking, keeping people awake. (laughs) (laughs) This is another poem that was in Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook, and earlier versions have slightly different second and fourth lines of each stanza, as in, London Bridge is broken down, dance over my Lady Lee. London Bridge is broken down with a gay lady. It's possible that the Lady Lee is meant to be the River Lee, which is a tributary of the Thames. 
But there are also pieces of this poem that date back even earlier than Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook. In the London Chanticleers, which was first printed in 1659, there's some dialogue about dancing the building of the London Bridge, and there are references to other London Bridge dances that date back to the early 18th century, although the dances themselves don't survive. There's also a 1725 satire called Namby Pamby, and in that, there are the words, Namby Pamby is no clown, London Bridge is broken down. Now he courts the gay lady dancing or the Lady Lee. There is a lot of speculation that this rhyme references a real destruction of London Bridge, or if not London Bridge, some other bridge in or near London. But it's usually not identified as the damage that came from the Great Fire of London in 1666 or the burning of London Bridge in 1135 that led to the bridge being rebuilt with stone. Instead, it's usually proposed to be an attack by King Olaf II of Norway in 1014, something that is referenced in Norse accounts but not in early English ones. Uh, We're going to take a quick sponsor break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about two more rhymes, uh, both of which are just a little bit more violent. One may be a lot more violent. We mentioned in our previous nursery rhyme impossible episodes that nursery rhymes can be really strange and scary and violent. There's just so much falling down and a lot of head injuries. <laughs> like, it's like a precursor to every short story that Flannery O'Connor wrote. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> head breaks open. <laughs> so we're going to end on two more dramatic examples of this. The first is Ladybird, Ladybird, which in the U.S. we usually call Ladybug, Ladybug, because that's what we call that insect. This is another poem that appears in Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook. And this one goes, Ladybird, Ladybird, fly away home. Your house is on fire and your children are gone. Or sometimes your house is on fire and your children will burn. There's also a slightly longer and probably newer version that offers some hope that not all of Ladybird's children are burned or gone, ending, all except one, and her name is Anne, and she hid under the baking pan. There are some variations on this. Like in Yorkshire, England, Ladybirds were known as Lady Cows. Or in Norfolk, they were Bernie Bee. And there was a rhyme that went, Bernie Bee, Bernie Bee, tell me when your wedding be. If it be tomorrow day, take your wings and fly away. I love that. The most straightforward interpretation of this is that it's almost like saying bless you or gesundheit when someone sneezes. In many parts of Europe, ladybugs, or ladybirds, if that's where they're called where you live, have been associated with the Virgin Mary for centuries. That lady in Ladybird is Our Lady. So, in that cultural and religious tradition, if a ladybug lands on you, you should take special care not to cause it any harm. So, you can recite this poem, gently blow on the insect, and send it on its way. But there's also a BBC article that claims that this poem is about, quote, 16th century Catholics in Protestant England and the priests who were burned at the stake for their beliefs. Uh, This article doesn't cite any sources for that claim. But logically, the connection that Our Lady is a common name for the Virgin Mary in Catholicism and the poem involving fire is where that comes from. 
of all the things we have talked about today, this one is like the least documented (laughs) as far as how people got from point A to point B. And lastly, the most directly violent of the nursery rhymes, at least in terms of what we're talking about today, it is Who Killed Cock Robin? And although that question acts as both the first line and the title, there is no mystery about who did it. The killer is named right away. Who killed Cock Robin? I, said the sparrow, with my bow and arrow. I killed Cock Robin. From there, we find out there were witnesses to this killing. Quote, who saw him die? I, said the fly with my little eye. I saw him die. In some versions, uh, the fly has a little teeny eye. Also, one of the animals caught Cock Robin's blood as he was dying. In some versions, this is the duck, which was just his luck. And in others, it was the fish with his little dish. Not sure why you'd want to catch it, but okay. Uh, I... I (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It turns out this is secretly about vampirism among animals. From there, the animals go on to plan Cock Robin's funeral, with the beetle making the shroud with a thread and needle, the owl digging his grave with a pick and trowel, the rook with his little book being the parson, the dove acting as chief mourner, either because she'd previously mourned for her love or because Cock Robin was her love. Animals, many of them birds, all have roles. Most of the animals are small, although the bull is the one who tolls the bell. Sometimes this is illustrated as a bull, but in others, it is a bullfinch. Some versions of this poem end with all the animals sighing and sobbing when the bell tolls for poor Cock Robin. But others have a few more lines after that. Quote, while the cruel Cock Sparrow cause of their grief was hung on a gibbet next day like a thief. So this is such a weird poem for kids. Uh, It goes beyond Jack and Jill falling down or even a cradle falling out of a treetop to just straightforward murder. Its first four verses were in Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook with the first line reading, Who Did Kill Cock Robin? Since that first publication, there have been a lot of standalone books and chapbooks, many of them very dramatically illustrated. Death and Burial of Poor Cock Robin, printed in 1865, is illustrated with animal heads on fully dressed, mostly human bodies. But others have the animals simply as animals, many starting off with a picture of a dead robin on his back, pierced through with an arrow. Uh, For some reason, I find that 1867 illustration with the animal heads on human bodies just profoundly disturbing. Oh, I love it! We can talk more about this in, in the behind the scenes. There are also other versions of this that build out the backstory with the courtship and a marriage between Cock Robin and Jenny Wren. Before a hawk abducts Jenny Wren and then Cock Robin gets murdered. And then there are sequels as well, which tell the story of Cock Robin's trial and execution. William Stewart Baring Gould's The Annotated Mother Goose speculates that this rhyme might be much older than 1744, since the earliest versions read, I, said the owl, with my pick and a shovel, which doesn't rhyme now, but it would have in earlier eras. It's the same sort of logic as that coffin laughing rhyme from Old Mother Hubbard. Another possible clue that it might be much older is the existence of a stained glass window in Buckland Rectory, Gloucester, which dates back to the 15th century. It depicts a robin that has been shot through the heart with an arrow. There are also some parallels to The Book of Philip Sparrow by John Skelton, which dates back to 1508. 
But even if this poem does date back to the 15th or 16th century, it's possible that it saw renewed popularity in the 18th century thanks to Sir Robert Walpole. Walpole was hugely influential in British politics and effectively served as prime minister from about 1721 to 1742, making him Britain's first prime minister even though that term was not formally used in Parliament yet. He became increasingly unpopular, starting in about 1737, and that downward slide continued after Britain went to war with Spain in the War of Jenkins' Ear in 1739. Walpole finally resigned on February 2nd, 1742, at which point the king named him First Earl of Orford. He remained influential after this point, but the heyday of his time in the government was over. That period of more than 20 years became known as the Robinocracy, and it ended just a couple of years before Cock Robin first appeared in Tom Thumb's Pretty Songbook, William Stuart Baring Gould is one of the people who suggests that maybe Cock Robin is supposed to represent Walpole, and this poem is about his political downfall. Peter and Iona Opie make the same suggestion in the Oxford Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes. There is also a totally different interpretation, and that's that this is a retelling of the death of the Norse god Baldur, son of Odin, who was killed when Loki convinced Hod to throw some mistletoe, mistletoe being the only thing that could hurt Baldur. Hod was blind, so he didn't know what he was throwing the mistletoe at, or in some versions, what he was shooting with an arrow tipped in mistletoe. Who Killed Cock Robin is described as having some similarities to earlier verses recounting this tale, but the ones that Tracy found all came along later. Yes, I went on a search trying to figure out, like, what maybe 18th century version of this poem was there, and I kept finding 19th century versions, and I was like, this doesn't help. Um, Another speculation is that this is about the death of Robin Hood, which I just found really charming, considering that Disney's 1973 Robin Hood film is also anthropomorphized. (laughs) Also, the death and burial of Cock Robin was the first taxidermy tableau of past podcast subject near and dear to my heart, Walter Potter. We are bringing that out as a Saturday classic. Yeah, I thought that would be a fun follow-on to this particular episode. Those are our six nursery rhymes for this time around. I'm sure we will talk more about Cock Robin in the behind the scenes because I have just a number of thoughts. Uh, Until that point, I have listener mail that is from Virginia. And Virginia wrote, Hello, Tracy and Holly. I've been gleefully listening to the podcast since 2016 and have wanted to write in for a long time. Then this week... Olivia Ward Bush Banks episode, The Moment Came. As I listened to the episode on my lunch break on, around the neighborhood, you mentioned a quote from the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper, and I did a little embarrassing shuffle dance upon hearing the name. In one of my master's classes, I came upon the Pittsburgh Courier as a reference for a paper and simply fell in love with the newspaper. For the next 16 months, I took every opportunity to research, read, and write about this little-known historic Black newspaper. Being from Pittsburgh, I'm always on the lookout to learn more about my hometown and how this newspaper has played several low-key but still important parts in several important events during the Double V campaign, the civil rights movement, the integration of professional sports, and helping the middle-class African-American community develop and display their identity. Some many important names have been tied to this newspaper's staff, Wendell Smith, 
P.L. Prattis, Frank E. Bolden, George Shiler, and cartoonists who depicted cartoons that showed comical and commentary aspects of African-American communities. They also hired the wonderful Charles Teeny Harris, a photographer whose photos have served as important depictions of everyday life in the Pittsburgh Black neighborhoods. Known for his charisma, Harris could make his portrait subjects feel so at ease that they would forget the camera was present, then he would take the picture to capture a truly beautiful moment. My favorite picture is a little boy in extra-large boxing gloves sitting in his corner. A single tear has rolled down his cheek, but he has the sweetest smile on his face and an impish twinkle in his eye. And then Virginia had a link to that picture. His 80,000 collection of negatives and photographs were thankfully purchased by the Carnegie Museum of Art and as part of their digitizing project, along with a permanent exhibit of his works. While there might not be enough information to do a full episode on Teeny Harris, I would wholeheartedly encourage you to consider him for one of the impossible episodes you might be planning in the future. I can promise you that you'll get pulled down the delightful research rabbit hole that I have happily hopped down myself to a beautiful land of 1940s and 50s community photos. Please, please keep up all your amazing work. Thank you so much for all you do, Virginia. Thank you so much for this email, Virginia. I did indeed click on that link, and that photo is beautiful. And then... Uh, I lost some time in the morning when I was meant to be researching instead looking at these gorgeous, gorgeous photographs. So thank you so much for sending this. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's why you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.